Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Lou Lauria, who I've known for a long time, but uh, we haven't seen each other for a long time because we both worked in the Olympic bid space for a while and we would kind of run into each other at Sport Accord or at a hotel somewhere. Uh, so it's been a long time, but Lou, it's so great to have you on. Thank you so much for participating. How are you? Doing well. Thanks, Christian. And yeah, really uh, looking forward to the opportunity and thanks for inviting me on. This is going to be fantastic. I've been listening to a lot of the uh, friends and former colleagues. And uh, yeah, it's, it's good to go through some of this again and brings back some smiles. Well, I will thank you for participating and also thank um, Kristen Hartley, who said, you need to talk to Lou. We interviewed Kristen a few weeks ago and uh, she was delightful. Kristen's great. And uh, you're doing some great work in the uh, Special Olympics world. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit about the stuff that you're doing currently. Sure. So uh, my current role is uh, chief of sport and competition globally for Special Olympics. So as uh, most people in the States, uh, Special Olympics has a real high awareness and everything. But internationally, we're in 190 countries, 6 million athletes to 114,000 competitions a year. Um, so it's a big movement and it's growing on the international side and really getting a lot of traction. So our team overlooks our world games, our world winter games. We have a unified cup and some other single sport events that we're rolling out on the international side. Um, so I've been there. It'll be four years in November. I met the CEO down in Rio. We went to the opening ceremonies together and then we worked something out shortly after that. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah. Special Olympics is a big deal. I think last year you had the world, the world games were in, uh, was it Abu Dhabi? Abu Dhabi. Yeah. It's a fantastic event. Now, what's happening with COVID? Because you've got something coming up in 2021. Is that right? Yeah, so 2021, we had our World Winter Games scheduled for Sweden. And um, in the Swedish government typically doesn't fund sporting events. So we ran into some funding challenges. So we um, had to put the event back out to bid, had some conversations with a few cities, and uh, wound up that we're going to Kazan, Russia in 2022 for our world winter games. Our world winter games are about 2000 athletes, hundred countries, um, nine sports. ESPNs are our, our uh, worldwide partner as far as broadcast. Um, so we'll be in Russia. So now as far as COVID, we're looking at these test events that are coming up in 2021. And I mean, I think everybody that listens to this podcast can probably appreciate the situation. Absolutely. Does it require you to work remotely or are you able to go into an office? Um, I work remotely. So I live in Atlanta, and um, our office is in D.C., but I have a, our, our team is in Caracas, Venezuela, Oslo, Seoul, Dublin, North Carolina. Uh, we have people everywhere. So uh, we're, you know, global team and used to working remotely. Uh, but there are a, a, a group that are in the D.C. office, which is our headquarters. So you're able to work remotely. You're accustomed to working remotely. It sounds like. Yeah, I've been working remotely the last six years. I was prior to the Special Olympics. I was at the UFC for two years um, in charge of international federation relationships and uh, corporate social responsibility. And I wasn't going to relocate to Las Vegas. Um, it wasn't going to work for the family. So I would I had a place out in Vegas and I would just go out um, once a month, typically. All right. Very, very good. Well, before we dive into the Salt Lake 2002 games, maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about the Special Olympics 
Uh, sometimes people get a little confused though, between the Special Olympics and the Paralympic Games. So what are the differences between the Special Olympics and the Paralympic Games? Yeah, that's a it's, it's a great question. And uh, I've got to say, I think I'm the only person, the only person of this generation that I know that has worked at the IOC, at the IPC, and now at Special Olympics International. So when I was working at the IPC uh, shortly after Salt Lake, I'd come back to the States and my friends thought we were, that I was at Special Olympics because... Paralympics, high profile, particularly high profile in the States. Now that I'm with Special Olympics, when I travel in Europe and Asia and see my friends, they think I'm back with Paralympics. So uh, for the for the general sort of audience, it's the difference between physical disabilities, which is the Paralympics, which we all live through in Salt Lake, or intellectual disabilities, uh, which is what Special Olympics. And Special Olympics is more grassroots. Um, we said 6 million plus athletes, um, 114,000 competitions a year. And it's focused on providing a platform for athletes with intellectual disabilities of all ability levels to achieve their best. We've got an athlete down in Florida who's training for an Ironman. He'll be the first athlete to complete an Ironman with Down syndrome. So that's a, a different ability level. And then we have other athletes who are, you know, in higher support needs doing boccia and, and other sort of sports. Um, and then the Paralympics, as everybody knows, is you know, more of an elite focus, although they do do work in the grassroots with the National Paralympic Committee, but it's more of an elite focus. It's more of a qualification process. Um, and yeah, so I guess that would be the, the two biggest differences. And the final question I've got for you on this particular topic before we get into Salt Lake is you know, where are the Special Olympics headed? You know, as you look to the future of that movement, you know, what are the, what is the potential, you know, in your mind, uh, where does Special Olympics go? Yeah, I, you know, I think our time is really good right now. If you look, you know, socially at everything that's going on in the world, the, the younger generations that are coming up are um, more inclusive by nature. There's, you know, more demand for the Paralympic movements making headroads in the same exact space. So it's, you know, uh, comparable movements with great missions, but I think social inclusion through sport, and this is something we were founded by Eunice Kennedy Shriver, um, who had a sister with intellectual disability, obviously the Kennedy family. So we know that history, but her sister had an intellectual disability and they always included her sister, Rosemary, in everything that they did. Um, they didn't leave Rosemary out of anything. And Eunice saw in, in the 1960s that people with intellectual disabilities in the States were living in institutions and group homes and were basically shuttered away and not made to be an active part of society, which the, the frankly, the parallel and how the Paralympic movement started with a German doctor who, and, and there's a great movie rise of the Phoenix on Netflix, highly recommend you watch it, but a German doctor who had to flee Germany because he was um, Jewish relocated to the UK and started working with disabled veterans, um, mostly wheelchair veterans who'd come back from the second world war. And the same sort of thing with people that were going to be shuttered away, not sort of made to contribute to society or expected to contribute to society. So Eunice took this in the 60s and she started to organize an event in her backyard. So it literally was Camp Shriver. She would invite people from, uh, you know, kids basically from group homes in, in the Maryland area. And they would come to her backyard and they would swim and they'd horseback ride and they'd play sports. And her family, all of her kids. So that's, you know... Uh, uh, Tim and, and all of his brothers and sisters, uh, Maria Shriver, all were part of this. They all grew up, Bobby Shriver, they all grew up immersed in this environment. 
of understanding that sport had the ability to to transform people's lives. And in, and back then, it was a lot of it was about awareness and getting people out to participate in sport. Now we're 52 years on from the first World Games in Chicago in 1968, and it's not about applauding the ability to participate in sport. Or it, now it's about we're talking about jobs and education and social inclusion and in every element of society. So the movement is is gone from raising awareness to bringing people out into light to taking that next step and to saying, hey, they can be taxpayers. They can be, you know, work a job, go to school and contribute the same way everybody else can contribute, you know, to the best of their ability, whatever your ability level might be. So I think our time is is good. And on the international side, it's interesting. We have about 745 sport partnerships. And by sport partnerships, we're talking about international federations, continental federations, and national federations. So everything from the Brazilian Tennis Federation to the um, Latin or South American Tennis Federation to the ITF, if you want to look at the whole vertical. And those 745-odd sport partnerships contribute about $2.7 million in value to our organization. Um, you know, partners like the Badminton World Federation of BWF, they contribute, you know, coaching uh, courses. They contribute um, all the technical support on the national level. They might provide access to facilities, equipment. Um, in some cases, the National Olympic committees might provide um, resources to get teams to compete um, and, and things like that. So these sport partnerships, because I mean, if you're a national federation and you're in Brazil, you look and you see 300 athletes playing tennis and you go, what are those guys doing? So oh, they're playing tennis. Okay, well, they'll play tennis with us. So this inclusive piece and the growth of sport, which is what drives every national federation, it's a really good fit. So I think, I guess, long way around that there's a lot of upside, especially on the international side, where we're seeing perhaps more sport than we are in the U.S. Oh, that's wonderful. It's fantastic. I'm going to come back to this uh, Special Olympic stuff later on in our conversation. But before we do, let's go ahead and uh, take that proverbial walk or stroll or bicycle ride down memory lane and uh, talk about 2002. So uh, let's start out with the beginning, Lou. What were you doing before you joined the Salt Lake Organizing Committee and what was your path to the OCOG? Sure. So, you know, if you look at 96, uh, 96, 2000, 2002, we had three English speaking games out of four. And I know a lot of the other guys, a lot of our friends came off the World Cup in 94. So I started in 96 in Atlanta with the Olympic Organizing Committee and then wound up going out to help the Paralympics. And we maybe talk about that later. And then from Atlanta, um, I was hired uh, in Sydney by Lisa Heinsohn, who had worked in Atlanta. And then from Sydney, I got a call from uh, from Jim Brown that Shavi was looking for somebody and Shavi and I had worked together in Sydney. So I was one of the fortunate ones that worked for three English speaking OCOGs out of four. And I was in Sydney. I wound up at the Olympic Stadium as one of the venue operations managers, which is a fantastic experience. And then was literally on holidays. I'd taken a few months off and I got an email. I remember I went into an Internet cafe. And uh, opened an email from Jim and he said, hey, Shabby's going to be looking for somebody if you're interested in coming to Utah. So I did. So give us a sense of the timing then. When was it when you actually came from from wherever you were? Was it Sydney or back home in Atlanta or wherever you were to to uh, Salt Lake City? Yeah, I literally moved directly from from Sydney to Salt Lake. And that would have been like January 2001, right? January 2000. Yeah, because Sydney would have been September 2000. So yeah, just as the start of the new year, January 2001. 
So you come from a hot Australian summer mm. to a cold Utah winter. What did you think? Yeah, you know, it was um, it, it was it was real comfortable and it was real easy transition. You know, there were people I knew from Atlanta, a lot of them um, who were already in Salt Lake, maybe they'd come directly from Atlanta. And then there were people coming over from Australia all the time. So from that perspective, it was easy to get your bearings. I mean, Salt Lake's a great city. Uh, I was a little surprised by maybe perhaps some of the diversity um, in Salt Lake. Maybe I didn't expect that. I had images of the Osmonds and, and others in my head. So um, the diversity was, was great. The city was great. I lived uh, ninth and ninth, which is a cool little neighborhood. I could ride my bike or walk to work or, or do whatever. So um, no, and the quality of life was outstanding. I, I got to say, I, I sort of, it was, and I guess for the locals like yourself, it was a little bit of a hidden secret, just how close you are to the mountains. You know, you see a lot of kids will move to Denver and it'll be like, oh, I'm going to move to Denver. I'm going to go skiing. And then you get to Denver and you go, yeah, after I get in my car for a couple hours, maybe I'll do that. And Salt Lake, the proximity, obviously the quality of the snow, everybody knows about, but a uh, beautiful place to live. You guys are fortunate. Were you a skier? I am decidedly not a winter sport person. I grew up in, uh, in, in New York City. So uh, yeah, uh, I did a little bit of cross country. I like to do that because that's like going out and running. You can go as slow as you want. So a little bit of that, a little bit of snowshoeing, but um, speed and uh, just sort of bare naked speed on a mountain me in control. That's not, that's not really what we want to do. Well, I live in Sandy. So we're, uh, kind of in between the two cottonwood canyons, big and little, nice. and there are four different resorts, as you know, within about 20 minutes drive, but I'm not a skier. And whenever anyone asks me, well, do you ski? I'm like, no, but I live within 20 <laughs> minutes of these resorts. Why don't you ski? Well, I don't know. It's just but, the, but the great thing though, is in the mountains, like my best time, my, my favorite time to go out to Utah is in the summer. There's for me, there's a lot more to do, right? You can go mountain biking, you can go hiking, you can go fishing. So I actually like the summer out there. I think it's fantastic. Now you mentioned uh, Javi needed some mm -hmm. help. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the role that you came in to assume here in Salt Lake? Sure. So Javi was in Sydney um, overseeing the Paralympic Games on all the operational sides. Um, then he was, uh, obviously offered the role in Salt Lake. So he took the role in Salt Lake and, um, it was a very small team and he needed somebody to come in and look over venue operations and sort of venue planning for the Paralympic venues. So, um, yeah, we had a conversation and, uh, and I knew him from Sydney. I didn't know him in Atlanta. Atlanta was two separate organizing committees, but I got to know him in Sydney and, um, came over and took the role over. And it was, it was Paralympic operations manager. So working with, uh, you know, Alan Brooks or Phil Jordan and his team out at Soldier Hollow, um, all the respective teams um, and just made sure that they integrated Paralympic planning and, uh, and everything, which was uh, it was an interesting experience because Paralympics then and Paralympics now are, uh, you know, Paralympic movements in a different place. So it was an interesting experience. Well, it certainly evolved, as you mentioned, uh, over time. And you just talked about in Atlanta, there were two different organizing committees, right? That's the way it used to be. You had an Olympic organizing committee and you had a Paralympic organizing committee and they were two different entities. But here in Salt Lake, you had one organizing committee that was responsible for both of those events. So tell us a little bit about that, you know, moving sure. from a two OCOG to a, a single OCOG uh, delivery model. Yeah. And even in Salt Lake, when Salt Lake bid, they were not required to host the Paralympic Games. So that always put you in a difficult position when you were the uninvited guest in some cases. I'm not saying that's the case in Salt Lake, but you were an additional expense 
you weren't a requirement that put you in a, in a very difficult position. Atlanta was a debacle. I mean, there's no other way to put it. The Paralympic Games were, uh, there were two separate organizing committees. I was with ACOG. And then when I saw what was happening, I was out at the Aquatic Center in Atlanta uh, in competition management. And then when I saw what was happening at the Paralympics on just any level, you couldn't let that happen um, if you had the ability to do something about it. So I got involved and I wound up on uh, Jackie Fields' team out at the uh, the seven football and lawn bowls venue, uh, which the venue was just in disrepair. I remember getting a box of keys, none of them marked. Nobody cared. Everybody just cut and run. The broadcasters all just cut the cables. I mean, it was really, really bad. And like I said, um, it, it caused actually the, the upside of that is that the senior leadership from Sydney went to Atlanta, observed Atlanta for all its good and all its bad. And um, they stayed for the Paralympics and then went back and understood what they had to deliver, um, which is which is key. So Sydney benefited a lot from Salt Lake in, in that regard. A lot of the concepts, a lot of the you know, even the first sort of TOK was Sydney paying Salt Lake for boxes of files and floppy disks and all that stuff um, before the IOC ever got around. I mean, I think it's important to note the IOC didn't have a games department in Atlanta. So the IOC was represented by the sports department and was very hands-off related to games planning. They didn't have the people, they didn't have the expertise technically. Um, and now they've obviously have, uh, you know, changed that dramatically, but um, yeah, Atlanta was, was difficult. Um, and Salt Lake had its challenges. Um, it's, it's now, you know, in a much different place than it was. Yeah, it was really, uh, you mentioned Lisa Heinsohn and uh, Anthony Scanlon going out to the IOC after uh, after the Salt Lake Games and and kind of starting that whole thing up there, you know, the, the notion of games department and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's totally interesting to think about that. The, it was a completely different era. So you come to Salt Lake, you're starting to settle into your role. What are some of the challenges that you're dealing with there trying to integrate the Paralympic Games into the delivery? Oh, it's super easy to sum it up, right? Like if you walked into a meeting in Salt Lake and there were people from Sydney who had lived through a very successful Paralympic Games, London gets a lot of credit and rightfully so. And you'll see if you watch this movie, Rise of the Phoenix, it sort of shows, basically it'll tell you almost everything started with London. But Sydney were a very, very, very successful Paralympic Games. The Australian people get sport and the Australian people get sport in the most basic way to sport for the sake of sport. In the US, I think we get it in a way of sport for the commercialization of sport, sport for the revenue. There's a real focus on that, which is why it's taken women's sport, you know, legislation or the inclusion of minorities in sport and other stuff. It's, it's about the money in the U S if we're being honest. Right. I mean, even youth sport, we have travel sport where you're going to pay $5,000 for your eight year old kid to play soccer in another state. Um, so anyways, you walk into a meeting in Salt Lake and if people from Sydney were in the room, the light was on. If people from Atlanta were in the room, light was completely off. People from Atlanta had no experience with what a successful Paralympic Games could look like, should look like, might look like. Maybe they were interested, maybe they weren't. Sydney, they'd all sort of lived through it. Um, it was more of a, it was two separate organizing committees, but they were in the same building. And so, uh, SPOC, which was the Paralympic Organizing Committee, contracted SOCOG, which was the Olympic Organizing Committee, to deliver a lot of the services. So it was as integrated as you could get. It was a really good model. Um, so that was it. I mean, it was light on, light off. Um, the other sort of challenge was that the senior leadership team, uh, well, there's obviously changes given the history of the Salt Lake organizing committee, but the senior leadership team had not seen a, a Paralympic games or a successful Paralympic games. 
So again, that makes it challenging when you don't know what you're supposed to deliver. You haven't experienced what you're supposed to deliver. You don't know what it could look like. And then if you put that in the context of a very American perception of what this should be, um, of what, what disability sport might look like, you're really operating off the back foot. Now, when it comes to the Paralympic Games, uh, you know, sometimes people think, well, you know, you can kind of be on autopilot for those because you just deliver this humongous event, the Olympic Games, and then you kind of scale down for this Paralympic Games. Um, but that isn't always necessarily the case. So, so talk a little bit, if you can, about what is different or unique about the Paralympic Games? Uh, what are some of the, I would say, not just challenges, but also opportunities um, that come uh, from hosting or delivering a Paralympic Games after the conclusion of the Olympic Games? Yeah, and it's funny because to your first point, and it's so true, I don't know how many meetings I sat in where somebody was completely ill-prepared, and this doesn't matter if it could be Atlanta, Sydney, Salt Lake, or any organized committee I've worked with or, or been engaged with since then. But the, the, the typical response you used to get more so now than you do now is, well, it's like the Olympic Games, only smaller. Or, hey, we have wheelchair ramps. And that those are just, you know, hey, I didn't really prepare for this meeting, but I think you have somebody in a wheelchair. Look, I have a ramp and an accessible toilet. Are we good? Can we end this meeting now? So there was definitely a lot of that. Um, and people just mailing it in. Right. But I think that the, um, as far as the opportunity, frankly, I think the opportunity in Rio is a good example of this. So I wound up, I, I left the UFC right before the sale and was sort of on my own for a little while. And, uh, Shavi and I caught up in sport accord, he told me what was going on in Rio. And he said, can you come down to Rio and help a little bit? So I went, I went down to Rio and helped out with fans in the stands and the ticketing piece. And uh, by the end of the Olympic Games, they had sold 200,000 Paralympic tickets, as opposed to uh, London and Beijing that had sold north of two, three million. But when the game started, the locals, first of all, Brazil had a strong Paralympic team, which is important. If the home team is good, that's a nice place to start from. And the locals took to the event. I mean, the Rio, and they say this in Rise of the Phoenix, it's sort of documented. But in 2016, the Olympic Park their busiest day as far as foot traffic was during the Paralympics, not during the Olympics. And it was real people. It was bus drivers and school teachers and guys that work in banks and women that are police officers or that drive taxis. It was real karaoke's that were coming to the Paralympic games to see sport because it's a family affordable price point. You know, you get yourself a ticket for 10 Riai or whatever it was. And you so when you looked, it was as authentic as can be. Whereas in the Olympic context, and I love the Olympic movement, but in the Olympic context, there's a lot of times when somebody's handed, sponsor, guest, is handed four tickets, and they're like, I am going to see handball. Okay, this will be good. They're, they're, they're there because they're a guest. They're going to see something, a sport maybe they're not familiar with. But the, but the local element of that um, and, and the connection with the community, I think, is stronger in the Paralympics for, for a variety of reasons. Well, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I remember being down in Rio during the Paralympic Games and being very pleasantly surprised at the local community response. You're right. The tickets were very, very affordable for the locals, and it really became a family affair to come out and watch the Paralympic competitions. And as you said, people came out in droves. And, and, and actually in Pyeongchang, when I was there during the Paralympic Games, 
I mean, I remember going to a couple of competitions and they were just packed with locals, you know, who just wanted to come and see it after you kind of exist in this afterglow of the Olympic games. When, when they actually come off successful, you get a lot of negative press at the beginning or before the games and, you know, it's going to be a disaster. And then when the games happen and people realize that they weren't a disaster and actually they're really cool, then a lot of local interest builds up and, and the Paralympic games in Rio and in Pyeongchang, I think we're able to draft, you know, yep. off of that, off of that Olympic afterglow. And they were fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in, in some ways, frankly, it's a, almost a, a, a payback or a gift to the people of a city. We've all lived in these cities for seven years where, your life has been disrupted because of changing traffic. This is going on. That's going on. Your life has been sort of consumed about this major event that's coming. And a lot of people are priced out of this event. A lot of people can't afford tickets, don't have access to tickets or, or some sort of engagement. And the Paralympics provides a, uh, a nice community platform. And the work done in schools and, and everything else that's done around it. In Sydney, I think we brought, oh, brought 300,000. There's more than that. I forget. I don't know. 300,000 students that have been involved in a year-long education program that wound up with them being able to attend the games. We had a day pass ticket in Sydney. We paid $10 Australian and you got a ticket that you could go watch an hour of athletics and then you could walk down the park to see a, a couple hours of tennis and maybe finish up with some swimming and then go grab lunch or go home. So um, very much an accessible event. And the athletes are, um, you know, the expectation they're, they're going to carry their own bags. They're, uh, you know, and this is, I mean, some of this is going to change is more money. And you, you look towards LA and, and you sort of see, I think LA is going to do a great job and LA is going to really sort of establish the Paralympic movement in, um, in the U S. Um, so yeah. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about the Salt Lake experience uh, during games time. What were you actually doing during games time? And what were some of the highlights, uh, either through competitions or some of the behind the scenes activities? Sure. So during the Olympic Games, I was in the mock on uh, on Jim Brown's desk, the uh, venue management desk, just pulling shifts there. And that was good because, you know, you got to start paying attention to as the games wind down, the transition planning and focusing on the venues that are going to be, you know, go live for the Paralympics and what the transition plan is. Um, so, and then during the Paralympics, I was out and about, but still in the main operations center. And to your point, a lot of people cycle out. A lot of people, there is a, I, I think from at least at that point, there was sort of, a, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. Somebody else is going to get ahead and run the Paralympics or, or sort of take the lead. But, um, yeah. So just, I mean, we had great venue managers. I mean, the, the atmosphere was fantastic. I always say that I've never worked at an organizing committee that had more experience in Salt Lake. Every venue manager had been a venue manager. The game, they'd all been through planning all from multiple organizing committees. So it was a, a real solid and experienced team. Um, and I always joke around, frankly, that if the IOC or the IPC would have called and said, Hey, could you do these games maybe in 2003 or 2004? I think everybody would have been like, yeah, I could actually continue to do this. I'm having a great time. Good people, great environment, fantastic city. So, um, so yeah. So, uh, you know, the thing we were worried about in Salt Lake were the ticket sales, you know, it wasn't a priority. Um, so things like that were a concern, but, um, in the end, uh, the people came out and to your point, I remember there was a, a writer, Mike, I can't think of his last name. He wrote some really nice pieces during the transition. So the media was good about, hey, this is coming up, this is, you know, and uh, 
it was it was good. It was a good event. Tell us a little bit about transition. I, I remember in Pyeongchang, for example, they had a massive snowstorm between the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games, and they uh, got like a meter of snow, and they were just shepherding everybody, marshaling every possible resource to try to dig out the village, <laughs> you know, because because they had athletes starting to show up and they were having a hard time getting in. So what's that what's that like transitioning uh, from an Olympic Games to a Paralympic Games? Well, again, I mean, I think in Salt Lake, it was good because the the people that were responsible for Paralympic venues, be they the village, Soja Hollow, uh, East Center, Snow Basin, all had experience. Um, so while the I would say maybe the planning in Sydney was more detailed um, and people had less experience and it's a summer versus a winter in Salt Lake, you just had good operators. You had really good people. So the execution of the transition, I don't remember there really being any significant problems. Remember, he's always focused on the overlay, make sure this is accessible. We did, you know, operational walkthrough. So here's how the media is going to enter. Hey, we've got media and wheelchair. We have media that are blind. Here's how the athletes are going to enter. Here's the Paralympic family is going to enter. It was good. We were, like I said, we were working with good people. Um, and maybe they didn't know and hadn't experienced the Paralympic games, but they knew events. And they were like, okay, so we'll, we'll just knock this out. Um, and it's interesting. I think the, the one thing I would say that is sort of interesting about the Paralympics in, in the U.S. context, you know, larger than Salt Lake, I think there was an element of it in the U.S. that's based on empathy rather than based on achievement or ability. So I think L.A. is going to be transformational in that regard. Um, uh, but I think that, uh, yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of the people want to trade on the empathy element of it. And, oh, aren't they so brave? And aren't they? But you talk to the athletes. The athletes are so down to earth. The wheelchair guys are making fun of the blind guys. These guys, are, everybody's just, it, it's, the people sort of tend to treat the athletes like they made a porcelain or they're going to, but this is just regular people. I mean, they're just good people and they're great athletes. So it's, um, that's always funny to, to see. They are exceptional athletes. I mean, to see some of the things that they do, I mean, it's truly, truly remarkable. Um, they are fantastic athletes. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is the weather, you know, because Paralympic Games are held after the mm -hmm. Olympic Games. The Olympic <laughs> Games are held in February. The Paralympic yeah. Games are held in March. And there can actually be quite a, you know, the weather can be quite different between those two months. So talk to us a little bit about weather in a, a winter Paralympic Games. Yeah, that is always a concern because you're right. You're coming up on spring, you know, so it's a matter of the snowmaking capabilities. I remember at uh, Soja Hollow, they were storing snow. Um, that we were using up at some reservoir. Um, in the end, we didn't have any real issues. And I'm not the most technical guy when it comes to snow quality. Like I said, give my background, lack of background in snow sports, but I don't remember any major issues. But I've seen other games where the snow is fading. And uh, yeah, there are some real concerns there. I, I will say that it makes me think of something else, which there was always this uh, sort of thought and people would raise it. Oh, well, if the Paralympic Games came before the Olympic Games, wouldn't that be better? And it would raise the profile of the Paralympic Games. And I've obviously never thought that to be the case. Uh, I think the Paralympic movement is, is, is happy to come after the Olympic Games. You made an earlier point, and it's so true, that um, you, the venue teams really sort of form, and they form during the test event, but during the Olympic Games, they form. And then for the Paralympic Games, you got your accreditation office at the East Center, and those volunteers or the paid staff all know each other. They're all working well together. They know their preferences. And so it's really, um, you're inheriting a team in most cases that are, are 
working well together that are well formed. The thing you have to worry about is burnout, you know, in some of the more challenging games like Athens or Rio, that would be a concern where the planning maybe wasn't, uh, you know, where you'd want it to be. And, and staff were burning it pretty hard as far as the hours they were putting in to, to try and catch up. But outside of that, the Paralympic Games coming after the Olympic Games is always going to be a good idea. As you mentioned, the Paralympic Games come after the Olympic Games. Not as many people from the organized community are needed to staff the Paralympic Games. So a lot of people leave in between the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games. And people start having mixed emotions at that time because they see a lot of their friends leaving. What's that like? You know, you come off this big high of the Olympic Games and then you start to see friends leave and you still have to deliver this Paralympic event. Yeah, it's actually interesting because my, like, uh, yeah, my experience has always, not always been, I was on the Olympic side in Atlanta, but being part of the, you know, the responsibility of making sure that Paralympic Games were delivered. Um, so I don't see it. I mean, a lot of people you'd see around, I mean, they're, they're dismantling their venues and the people that, I mean, sure, you might see a short time person who was on a, you know, eight week contract to do accreditation or something at a, at a venue. Um, they might be rotating off because their venue is not a Paralympic venue, but the venue management team, the sport team, I mean, they're winding things down. They're bumping out of their venues. So people are around. Um, a lot of times you'll see people turning up. There's a lot of, there's always a big party circuit that can last, uh, you know, last for weeks after games, um, different departments who's throwing a party venues. So I, I don't see it. Um, I don't see it necessarily being as noticeable. Uh, yeah, like I said, maybe for real short time people you know, their contracts end and they've got, you know, they're moving on. But um, for the most part, I, I thought the people I wanted to see were still around. They might not have been working on a Paralympic venue, but they were still around. Well, one thing we haven't talked about, a lot of people have brought up uh, is 9-11, a seismic event that really happened in the middle of all of this uh, planning to deliver. And it changed a lot of things uh, operationally uh, for the games. Was there any particular impact on you or your area? I mean, obviously, there was an impact on the organization as a whole. The organization's tasked with um, delivering the Paralympic Games. So in that context, yeah. But as far as a direct impact on the Paralympic Games, it would have been whatever the impact was on the Olympics. However, the security environment or the theater of operations changed for the Olympic Games. We would have been a subset of that. Um, yeah, obviously, we all remember the day it happened. I remember getting up. I was supposed to go into headquarters for a meeting. And back then, you had like a clock radio. So the news was on. And then I remember just going into my living room and, and just watching and just sitting there getting sick. So, um, yeah, it was strange times for sure. Or strange times. Clock radio. That's been a while. It has been, it's a, been while. a while since I woke up to a, a clock radio. <laughs> it's been a while. I tell you what, I wish it has I been a while. Now I'm, using, now I'm using my iPhone and, and you wind up checking emails and yeah, uh, maybe a clock radio would be, I should see if I can go find one in the basement. <laughs> yeah, I've been waking up to my phone for so long. I don't even remember the last time I actually woke up to an alarm that was set on my clock. So um, uh, really, really interesting. All right. Before we get to our final segment, Lou, are there any other particular stories or experiences that you wanted to share? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's actually interesting. So we're talking, you know, the an organizing committee has two core. I mean, you have the administrative backbone, you know, HR, finance, legal and right. OK, so that aside, you look at the people who are operational, so sport, venue management, transport, all the operational functions. And then you look at all of the 
communications and I don't want to say it's hard and soft, but you look at the communications, the fundraising, the commercial. And I think that the awareness on the commercial and communication side was frankly a bigger challenge than on the operational side. The operators are going to operate. It's the communications people that, you know, maybe are going to not allocate the resources because it's, it, I mean, for them, frankly, and, and again, in the U.S. context, and maybe another context too, it's, there's an ROI factor. They've got to go out and achieve X revenue, or they've got to go out and do the marketing and communications that will help achieve X revenue. So if the ROI is not there, um, they're not as motivated. You're not going to get their best effort or the resources that maybe are appropriate, which is unfair to the athletes. I mean, frankly, in the, in the U.S. context, this is what Title IX was all about, right? So it's, um, it's uh, yeah. It's, so I would say that was some of the challenges in Salt Lake would have been around some of that. I remember the IPC in the agreement, there was no agreement for a torch relay. So the torch relay, it, that became sensitive. They wanted, oh, why do you have to use a flame? Can't you use water? Those kind of conversations. Here's $75,000. And nobody wanted to point out that, yeah, if you use water in the winter, it's probably going to freeze and it'll be ice. But um, so there were those kind of conversations. And I, then I remember actually fast forwarding a couple of years later, and I'm in sitting in Bonn, living in Germany, working for the IPC, and we're going, and now we've got, and I think this is important context too to level set. The IOC and the IPC signed their first agreement in Sydney in 2000. So the IOC and the IPC agreed formally with a document in 2000 to work together. So now it's 2003, 2004, and I'm in Bonn and we're working on Paralympic technical requirements that we're going to feed into the IOC. So the IOC has got all their bid materials. They've got all their sort of other things they're building with Arno Walter and that team. Um, and we're doing all this work together. Dave Grebenberg and I are doing all this work for the IPC, integrating with the IOC. And I remember sitting there literally and, and typing in, you know, on, on my laptop, typing in that there was going to be a torch relay and it was going to be seven days in length or whatever the number is. And it was going to contain these elements. And then I remember, you know, six, eight months later, when the documents got produced and the IOC came back out with it, there was a torch relay literally in the documents. So nobody ever had to go through a commercial person saying, well, it's not in the agreement. And the, the funny thing is, I always imagined in Lausanne, there would be somebody looking that over and they'd be like, yeah, of course it's a torch relay. Yeah. Okay. What's next? What are we looking at next? So it's crazy that you were able to, I mean, we were so small back then. The IPC was like 12 people. Now they're sitting at, I don't know, 110, 120. Um, so it was just so different, but I remember literally being able to go back in and making changes so that somebody else wouldn't have to live through some of the nonsense that you had to live through. So Christian, one of the interesting things in Salt Lake uh, was the broadcast piece. So we, again, not having a responsibility to put on the games, there was no host broadcaster. Uh, we didn't have any sort of contracts in place. So I remember going with Xavi to meet Manolo. And I'd always assumed that Xavi and Manolo knew each other from Barcelona or from Atlanta or from Sydney. And I don't know, maybe I don't think everybody in Spain knows everybody, but people in the industry, I thought they knew each other. So we sat down at the ISB office, which was a few blocks from the slot offices to sit with Manolo and, and Mark Parkman and to sort of talk through what this broadcast uh, might look like. And it was fantastic because Manolo 
and people, you know, have their opinions. He's a tough guy. He's, he's rough. But there was an element that you could see with Manolo that he wanted to make this happen, that it was the right thing to do. Because we had to literally, we had Anheuser-Busch VIK for production trucks. And, and we, because Anheuser-Busch has their own production trucks, we took a little bit from there. We had this uh, other, so it was cobbling together everything we could find and, and totally MacGyvering together this broadcast, which wound up, uh, we were on one of those lifetime type of channels at night. Um, and it was good coverage. I mean, for, for Salt Lake back then, it was good coverage. But I just remember seeing in Manolo's face that, you know, he's obviously done very well. He's had a very successful career. He's, you know, and everything, but that he seemingly wanted to do this, as did Mark Parkman, who's a great guy and is now uh, over at the Olympic Channel, wanted to do this because it was sort of the right thing to do because there wasn't a lot of upside in it. It was literally a house of cards that was duct taped together by borrowing a little bit of this and flipping this that way. And if you could leave this cable, we can plug it in. Um, but that was a, a uh, yeah, fond memory of Salt Lake, putting the broadcast together um, and how tenuous it all was and the goodwill of, of, of decent people to, uh, to see an opportunity to do the right thing with, like I said, no real upside for them. So uh, just out of curiosity, when did, uh, or how have the, how have the broadcast arrangements evolved then? Cause you went from ISB to OBS and all this kind of stuff. So how, how has it evolved over the years? Now it's my understanding. It's all included in the contract. So there's a, Post broadcast that they produce the signal for the Olympics and for the Paralympics. Obviously, the Paralympics will be scaled down what sports are live versus, you know, recorded. Um, and then the IPC goes out and secures, um, you know, domestic broadcasters working closely with the IOC. In fact, the IPC just signed a big deal with uh, Channel 4, which in London, Channel 4's work was absolutely breakthrough work. They had a nightly show called The Last Leg that was hosted by a, an amputee who was a comedian. Um, brought athletes on and really broke down a lot of what I was talking about before where people are, what do I say? How do I talk to a person in a wheelchair? Oh, can I help? Can I? And it just broke all that down and just pre presented the athletes as they are human beings. Uh, fantastic. Uh, you know, for all everything else. So channel four was a, and there's a couple little broadcast clips. I can send you the links. They did a, a broadcast clip promo video for London. Uh, using actually PE fight the power, which was great. And then they did one for Rio, which these things are getting like 10, 15 million views on YouTube. They're that good because they're edgy and they really sort of break through any preconceived notions or um, things like that. So Channel 4 is a, as a UK or, or British broadcaster is a really good broadcaster. All right. Yeah. Send me the, send me the links. I want to check that out. And cool. also the, what was the Netflix? Uh, rising Phoenix. Rise, the Rise of the Phoenix or Rising Rising Phoenix or Rise of the Phoenix. Yeah, you saw okay. it. Definitely going to look it up as well. So, all right, cool. Thank you so much. It's amazing to, to see the to see the evolution of it. I believe that as you talk about the U.S. context, there's really incredible potential here. As you mentioned, LA 2028. I think LA 28 will will be able to to help realize that potential. And I see the Paralympic Games becoming a real force here in the States. Um, and, it, and it's going to be driven like much of what we do in the States. It's going to be driven by the potential for revenue. The Olympic movement is pretty highly leveraged. If you look at price tags of sponsorships, broadcast deals, like it, it's pretty fully leveraged. 
what they realized was there was upside and opportunity in the Paralympic movement. So you're seeing much more of a focus. You know, in Colorado Springs, they shifted, they established a pillar with donations. So they made a move five, seven, 10 years ago now, whatever it is, to focus on donations. And a lot of those donations are a Paralympic athlete going to a dinner here in Buckhead hosted by somebody telling their story. And the stories are amazing. I think it's like, I think Shavi's used this term that the the Olympics create heroes, heroes come to the Paralympics. So you'll see Paralympic athletes telling their stories. And in the donor space, both the Olympic and Paralympics, it's going to generate donor revenue, but the Paralympic story and then the ability to to generate additional revenue, it's not fully leveraged. So I, I see it as an opportunity. And then you factor in the conflict we've been in for the last 20 years. And that adds an element of funding, that adds an element of revenue, that adds an element. So again, in the US, um, you know, minorities had a fight for their right to play sports. Uh, women had a fight for their right to play sports. And I always tell people, because you get these conversations about power, and this is, you know, going back to Salt Lake and before Salt Lake, and people would tell you, people from Colorado would tell you, hey, you know, there's no money in Paralympic sport. I would say, is there a, is there a lot of money in uh, U.S. team handball as like, I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but is that, I mean, it's not why we do this. It's, you know, and if you subbed out disability sport with women in sport or, you know, minority people of color in sport, you, you, you'd be in a very difficult situation. So, um, I'm glad the Paralympics are going to get their time in the U S and I think the movement's on the right foot and it's great. I think generationally seeing, uh, youth being more receptive, more open to this, like we started the conversation is a good thing. All three movements are great movements. Well, it's fantastic to have you on here and really shine a spotlight on the Paralympic Games. We've had people, guests on the program, on our podcast, who have highlighted some Paralympic experiences that were important to them. But we haven't really had an episode that has really been focused on the Paralympic Games or the Paralympic movement. So, Lou, I really appreciate you coming on and shining that spotlight. To our final segment... My three questions for you. The first question for you, Lou, is a music question. So have you thought of a song or a group that uh, was really popular? Well, they didn't even have to be popular back then, but it was something that you listened to when you were working uh, in Salt Lake. So something that I listened to as my own preference or something that was like through osmosis just sort of seeped into the building and and it was sort of environmental. Either way. Whatever it is that just that just makes you, if you ever heard the song today, it would make your thoughts go right back to, oh, I remember where I was when I heard this. It would probably be one of those bands that Jean Marie had out at Metals Plaza. So maybe it's like a Bare Naked Ladies or, I don't know, Dave Matthews or something along those lines would make me think of the games. Um, as far as what I listen to, I listen to The Clash a lot. So if I'm going out for a run or if I'm riding my bike or something, I'm probably listening to The Clash. Well, we should throw some Clash on there. <laughs> Any particular song? Um, anything outside of Combat Rock. The Combat Rock album should be disregarded, but their entire body of work, it's, it's why they're the only band that matters. All right. Um, I get yeah. to choose one then. It's uh, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. I, Working for the Clampdown is a good song. Guns of Brixton. Um, yeah, you can't go wrong. Okay, now let's go to food. 
tell us about a restaurant that you used to like to go to. You were in Ninth and Ninth, so there were some nice little eateries around there or downtown or up in Park City. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I hadn't thought about the restaurants at Ninth and Ninth, but there was one of those barbacoas that I used to go to. I'd walk around and get a burrito there. But the place, when I was thinking, it's funny, I was thinking in the work context, was the place right across the street, the Globe. We used to go to the Globe all the time and uh, thought that was really good. Yeah, several people have talked about the Globe. It definitely was an institution. It's a shame that it's not there anymore, um, but we definitely put it on the list and we'll put the clash on our Spotify playlist. And now for our final question today, give us your goosebump moment. It's interesting. Well, there's sort of two things I thought, like um, opening ceremonies. I saw somebody mention this before. So I don't know how many people know it, but in Stevie Wonder's agreement to play the opening ceremony, if it rained, he didn't have to play. So, and then somebody mentioned the fact that he did play and they quoted a lyric or something from, uh, from his performance. So I just thought like, and that wasn't a goosebump moment necessarily, but I just thought that was pretty cool of Stevie Wonder he could have opted out. And instead he sat there in the rain, um, pouring rain and, and played and was fantastic. I mean, Stevie Wonder is obviously an icon and a legend. Um, as far as a moment that I, that I'll always remember the gold medal game at the East center in sledge hockey, there were people scalping tickets out front and there were people selling like counterfeit merchandise out front. And, um, I remember we were in the Paralympic family lounge and standing up, looking out the window and, and seeing all that stuff go on. And I don't know if the guy got arrested or what happened, but I remember just thinking, all right, and there's an element of this in the U S where Maybe you're on the right track if people are selling counterfeit merchandise and uh, and scalping tickets for a sold out, you know, uh, gold medal. And the East Center was great in that regard because our other sports were daytime sports. So everything wound up concentrating around the East Center at night for uh, for the evening session of uh, sledge hockey, which is great. All right. Not that we're encouraging ambush marketing or, no, <laughs> or ticket scalping, but it does go to show how the games actually became popular that 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 match or that event became uh that session became popular i remember i remember clearly in the snow on main street in park city maybe it's a year before the games or whatever it would have been or maybe months before the games putting posters up like we had this poster i don't know if it was muffy davis by the way you should have either muffy or chris waddell come on uh both fantastic and did a great job being the face of the games and and i mean they're just both incredibly uh, amazing human beings. But I remember putting posters up. We had these sort of purplish looking or shadow mountain, mountain shadow posters up and putting them along Main Street and just praying that somebody would come to the Paralympic Games. So then to see that fast forward to where you can't get a ticket in the East Center and it sold out was, uh, you know, in, the, in, in Salt Lake sort of story, it was a, a nice moment. Well, this conversation for me has been a very nice moment. It's been great to catch up with you, Lou, after so many years. If our listeners want to learn more about the work that you're doing at the Special Olympics or uh, to reminisce about the time in Salt Lake or learn more about the Paralympic Games, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you? Yeah, I would, I would suggest LinkedIn. I mean, I'm pretty much off the rest of social media. It's an open sewer. But I'd recommend um, I'd recommend LinkedIn. Just shoot me a message on LinkedIn. All right. Fantastic. LinkedIn it is. Lou, thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon. Again, Lou, thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Christian. It was fantastic. Good to speak to you. And uh, yeah, stay well. <laughs>